Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. This is really meant to be more of a time of teaching. So uh, when I teach, I like to have a stool. Secondly, there's, uh, there's a lot of interesting humor, heavenly humor around creation. Some of it I won't use. Some of it I look at and I go, okay, that crosses the line to being sarcastic. And so I, I won't use it. But uh, the stuff I think is fairly clean, I will. And so there's one I have here if you want to put it up here. The question, here it is. How did Adam and Eve feel when expelled from the Garden of Eden? How'd they feel? Answer? They were really put out. Okay, that, you really did suffer from chipping the ice off the cars this morning. Uh, before I read the text, there have been many attempts from the, those that want to disprove the existence of God and they are often represented in the isms, the hedonism, postmodernism, uh, humanism, new age, okay, the isms group. That is interesting, a bit of a study because I've, I've pushed back on the Bible and the existence of intelligent design has been influenced European for, high, for reasons of higher thinking. So therefore, for reasons of thinking, not unlike, and this is not, history repeats itself, not unlike Acts chapter 17 where we see Paul debating with those of the higher education and they debate it back and forth. And out of that there have been these, uh, to try to bring evidence of just natural design instead of intelligent design. Interestingly enough, I've just, here's something that kind of took me a little bit by surprise, that more in the Western culture, Western world, that we are not so much driven by that, although that influences us, higher thought and reason, but we are driven by also the issues of morality. And the issues of morality, in other words, we excuse the existence of God based on we don't want God. Because to have a God changes the way we live. It changes right and wrong. It changes our ethics. And so decisions and a lot of education has been driven that, if you call it a driver, drives that with that, with that premise starting that we, we want to change the face of morality. So you put higher reason thoughts and then also morality and it has been all, and that's, it's not recent, that has been history. I'm very aware that words are very important in any time you speak. But no less when we talk here from Genesis. I've been very intentional, I seek to be intentional in the words because I know people are listening to this podcast, they're listening to it, uh, who aren't just here. So I've been very... I don't want the messenger to be offensive. I want the message to be as clear as it can be, and I want it to be as clearly read and described, describing itself. However, here's the reality that the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ offends us. All of us. 
and it ought to. If it doesn't offend you, it means you are not being transformed. Because unless there is something that we need to change, we remain the same. And we all need change. Our sinful nature, we all need to change. I've used the expression, I used this back a few weeks ago in the Romans series in regard to we are not, we don't sin. Question being, are, do we sin because we're sinners or are we sinners because we sin? Do we sin because we're sinners or are we sinners because we sin? And the answer to that is I'm not a sinner because I sin. Because then we begin to base sins as the prerogative of, of our state. I sin because I'm a sinner. I was born in iniquity. It's in the human nature to resist, to rebel, and I'm a sinner. At the age of accountability, at the age of awareness, then now we are accountable for that, and that varies according to different people. So, when we come into the topic that we are dealing with in Genesis, yeah, it is very important. Because Genesis sets the premise. It sets in motion everything that follows from Genesis. And it gives credibility to, it gives credibility to the gospel. It gives credibility to the need for a Savior. It gives credibility for what Christ has accomplished and how sin, the, that we are no longer slaves to sin, we're slaves to God, not in a derogative sense, but now we surrender to Him. And we are under His authority and His power, His kingship. It also gives credence to eschatology, gives credence to the end times. Revelation doesn't carry weight, and if we don't have weight carried in Genesis, it also gives credence to hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the ability to be able to go through Scripture and take it for what it is. Or else you and I are calling, I agree with this, but I disagree with that, I agree with this. And then that puts us at the top of the, the top of the pole, the totem pole. We can't do that. We have to take the scriptures as God has given and follow through literally. And there are things that we will scratch our heads and not understand. But those things typically are not uh, monumental situations where it affects our security in Christ, our security in our living out our faith. But it's interesting that as time goes on, our... 21st century and modernism is not uh, arguing away Genesis. It's not diluting Genesis strength. It's actually increasing Genesis strength. The more as time goes on, the more as we discover, the more we see Genesis is dead on. The more we are... There's a thing called the age of enlightenment. We, we recognize that expression. And I've had that expression. My, I've talked with my kids on this. This is a big discussion I have with my kids. Because it's often it's come down from the uh, millennial generation, particularly into the Z generation. And so trying to understand that age of enlightenment is that we will, what we do today, 50 years, 100 years from now, we'll be enlightened. We'll look back and we'll say, oh, that's so silly. We believe those things. And there are things that are not the absolutes that we begin to understand better. The age of enlightenment is kind of the whole Star Trek theory, right? That you get into a place and you, you now... Now you understand how this worked, and that magical stuff really didn't take place. We displaced God by the natural things we understand. But the Age of Enlightenment is, again, a concept, and that is being, again, disproved frequently through study in Scripture. 
It's okay to study scripture. As a matter of fact, God himself says, test me and see if I will not prove myself. Taste and see if the Lord is good. Test me in these things, particularly in Malachi. So it's okay. It's okay to ask the questions. It's okay to, to go back and forth. And I have not want to set this up as debate as much as a point of discussion, a point of discovery. To me, it's a point of discovery. Three attempts within the church community to remove the literalness of Genesis. Number one attempt is called progressive creation. Progressive creation is where Genesis uh, is understood over the eons of time. Genesis is over. Uh, Genesis took place over hundreds of millions and billions of years. The second one is called literary device. Genesis seen as a literary device. In other words, that Genesis was not meant to be taken literally. Uh, we don't have to understand Genesis, and the symbolism used here is the clothesline to the close. You don't have to understand the clothesline to know that clothes can hang on a clothesline. And so we can accept God and Jesus and all that stuff, but we don't have to understand the origin of it. We don't have to understand the clothesline. I argue against that. And the third thing is theistic evolution. Theistic evolution is that Genesis is not history. Genesis was ever only meant to be poetic. And I've had a youth pastor tell me this uh, when I was a kid. Tell me this. Uh, he didn't use those words, but that's what he was saying. He says, it's, it's poetic. Uh, you know, Job's poetic. And he began to cite different ones. It's just poetic literature. Uh, it's not history. And that evolution allows for us to fit the right pieces in. So I'm going to begin to read Genesis chapter 1. Can you go there? Are you ready? Grab your Bibles and your devices, Genesis chapter 1. And today, I, I, I originally had a title, Genesis God Creates, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to call it for what I'm planning to do. I'm going to call it Genesis day 1 to day 4. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. Genesis day 1 to day 4. When you go back and you look at the name, the title, it'll be self-explanatory. Genesis day 1 to day 4. Let's read it together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Verse 6, and God said... Let there be vault, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated water under the vault from water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and gathered waters he called sea. God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and seeds of the land that bear fruit and seed in it, according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed according to their kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. 
And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate day from night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made stars, set them in the vault of the sky to give the light to the earth, to give light to the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. Father in heaven, I ask that you would help us to comprehend what it is you want us to comprehend. That, Lord, our hearts and our minds would be in unison with what your spirit, the same spirit that in verse 2 set into motion creation, the same spirit that resides here this morning, desires for us to know. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Science. I looked this up this morning. Science, the definition of science, systematic study of structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experience and experiment. It's really cool. We actually do have an eyewitness to Genesis. God. And he wrote about it. Inspired Moses and gave Moses things he could not have known. Genesis definition is a book of the origin of life, a book of beginnings. And the name of the book reflects that out of Christian doctrine, the foundation is established at creation. So it's not surprising the book is among the most attacked of Christians. By Christians, I shouldn't say by Christians because we don't attack the book, we just have a hard time interpreting it, but by those who um, do not recognize intelligent design. The date of creation, I'm going to try to weave through this to get through four days. I don't want this to be a never-ending process, and so I'm committed to try to do this in 10 to to 12 sessions. I have no idea how long it will go, but it'll be somewhere I'm aiming to that. So I have to hit a bunch of days together. Uh, So it's the date of creation. I need to pause here because the date of creation, the timing of creation of the world is always best understood. Anytime you go to a court situation, eyewitnesses carry Trump when being able to bring conviction or no conviction. And the idea, again, behind science is like, well, none of us were there. None of our kids were there. We know of nobody who was an eyewitness at the point of Genesis, the creation of Genesis. And yet science definition, systematic study of structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. Having said that, the Creator, He does bear witness, and He has given us the Bible. It's inspired writings of the account of mankind. It's a story of God. The Bible provides a wealth of chronological information, and I stated last week, and I do believe Genesis is not simply, or the Bible is not simply a theological book, and Genesis is not simply a book about God, about the fall of man, chapter 3. Genesis is primarily a, a historical writing. The Bible provides a wealth of chronological information, putting the earth at under 10,000 years of age, approximately 6,000 years of age. Now, you've heard the terms young earth, old earth. Maybe, maybe not. And the idea is that if you say 6,000, that's young earth. Old, millions of years. 
So we don't have a young earth based on discovery. It must be an old earth. Now, understanding that the terms young and old is very relative. Let me give you an illustration. When I was a kid, when I was a teenager, and you talked about somebody in their 50s, if I didn't say it, I certainly thought it, they are old. Okay? Noah still thinks that. Okay. They're old. Now that I'm in my 50s, 50s isn't that old. I keep moving my numbers. You tracking with me? You have too, I know. You keep moving those numbers up as you get older. They keep, the scale changes. It's relevant. What is young, what is old? The age of 6,000 years today is regarded as so young because we have been indoctrinated in a billion year idea. We've been indoctrinated. Television, media, education. With throwing out of billions of years. But in reality, 6,000 years is a vast age. Let me give, there's a picture I'm going to throw up here in front. In this picture, tourists will travel to Cape Leowin in Australia. And there they will see the petrified water wheel, is what this is called, the petrified water wheel. It was built in 1895. It took only 60 years of minerals from the spring water to petrify the wooden wheel with limestone, freezing it as a solid rock. Now, petrify, the word petrify, looked it up for you, means to change organic matter into a stony substance. So it took 60 years of dripping water, spring water, to turn this wood and wheel into a rock. 60 years. 60 years, continual water dripping on an object is actually an incredibly long time. This means that anything substantially older than the span of humans can be accurately described as old or ancient. And earth, thousands of years old, is really quite old. Creation day one. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good. He separated light from darkness, called light day. The darkness he called night. There was evening. There was morning the first day. The beginning of light. Evolutionists rely on a principle called uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism is, means this. The present is the key to the past. The present is the key to the past. And, and, and so, Peter actually... I found this scripture. Very interesting. I came to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Watch this. Look at this. Peter says, You must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Did you catch that little phrase? Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But, continues, they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. 
And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. If you want to understand the past by examining the presence, then we have to take a hard look then at what we're seeing today. If we try, because we weren't there in the past. I wasn't. You weren't. So if we're going to understand the past by what we see today, we've got to take a really hard look at today. It's our cosmos. I want to share a few things about today in discoveries. First of all, tissues found in fossils. Many of the fossils presumed millions and billions. And yet the, there's tissues in these fossils. As we learn to be able to study these details, we are discovering there have survived blood cells. Vessels, DNA, ligaments, living bacteria in the fossils. Again, a picture of this. We want to throw a picture up. And in these fossils, we call this soft tissue. Soft tissue cannot survive tens of thousands of years. Impossible. They eventually cease to exist. And yet, the fossils, they're finding in the majority of them soft tissue. Relatively new discovery. Secondly, the Earth's magnetic field is decaying exponentially as a giant resistance inductive circuit. Did anybody read the news this morning about the volcano in the ocean? In the Indian Ocean, there's a volcano. Volcano, the height of the volcano finally broke through the Earth's surface. The largest volcano underwater. It's a half a mile high. And it just, it just came up in the last week uh, in the oceans. So many things, and in that, they're going, they, they, to, to try to understand it, it's, it's like it's beyond all of us, and it ought to be. I mean, this is amazing stuff. As we continue to see the earth makeshift and respond, here's the thing. There's a magnetic field that's decaying exponentially as a giant resistance inductive circuit. Come back to that later. Thirdly, salt is entering the sea quicker than it's leaving. You do the math, it has to be a young earth. We wouldn't have what we have today. Fourthly, comets lose so much mass every time they pass the sun. Take a look at the comets here. They lose so much mass every time they pass the sun. That's why we see the tail. They can't have orbited beyond 10,000 years or beyond. These millions of years pictures. Another picture I want to put up here is the polystrate fossils. There we go. We have it. Um, show, and this one is one of the most common seen. Shows in, in the layers, you see the layers of evolution, the idea of millions and hundreds of millions of years. And yet you have this tree right up the middle of it. And this is not uncommon. This is probably one of the most uh, recognized ones. Polystrate fossils show that they have been deposited quickly before the organism had time to decay. A polystrate fossil is a fossil of a single organism that extends through more than one ge geological stratum. And as you see, it goes through multiple geogra geographical stratums. And therefore, there was an event that froze it. We trust an eyewitness account of creation. God. I, God says, I created. By his word, he created. He created light, day one. Day two. 
The creation of the expanse, verse 6, and let there be a vault between waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault, separated water under the vault from the water above it. It was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, there was morning, second day. This expanse would be home. This is the expanse out there, the universe, the cosmos. Home to the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies. Created that they come into place in their creation on day four. Since this expanse is so vast, the stretching out would have needed to have happened way faster than the speed of light, which is no problem to an omnipotent God, an all-powerful creator. He doesn't have problems with this. Verse 6, it says, and let there be a vault. Actually, I want to go back. On day 2, it, where we just finished reading, day 2 uh, really majors on the water. Uh, actually, you get into the first part of day three, it majors on the water as well. Majors on the water, and indeed, water is a remarkable liquid. But God isn't finished on day one. He continues it on in day, on day two. He continues it on in day three. Verse six, it says, Let there be a vault between the water to separate water from water. The word vault is, is the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is rakia. Rakia. That's the word they actually is used. We translate it vault. Rakia means spacious expanse by definition. This rakia represents the spacious expanse of the cosmos, which did not exist in the beginning, but God, God spoke it into place. This spacious expanse, God enlarged by definition. It actually says he stretched it out so as to make the cosmos a habitable place. God now picture this. Look up here. If you can, I, those who are in podcast, you won't see this. He stretched it out. He went like this. Like you would open a curtain. He blew. He just a boom and it all came. He stretched it into place. How do we know that? Throughout scripture, we see it cited again and again by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at it. You have it in front of you. Job chapter 9 says God alone stretched out. Same word. The heavens. Psalms 18. God bowed the heavens and came down. Isaiah 40, who stretched out the heavens like a curtain. The picture I gave you earlier. Spreads them like a tent. Have you ever had a tent all wrapped up into a tiny ball? Stretch it out. That's the picture. Jeremiah, and by his understanding, stretched out the heavens. Ezekiel, the likeness of an expanse spread out above their heads. Zechariah, thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens. Important going to talk more about that another day. In all of creation, six days, day one, God is saying, he ended day one, created light, said it was good. But interestingly, day two, he doesn't say it was good. All the other days, he says it's good. Like, what happened? Was day two not that good? But the reason he didn't say it was good, <laughs> maybe... The reason he didn't say it was good is because it wasn't finished. It actually is not finished until day three. Day three, he finishes it. And in day three, when he, in day three, he said good twice. I really found that interesting. So day one, he says it's good. By the way, if you want to have evidence to the goodness of God, the days of creation are the best, one of the best evidences there is. God's goodness. 
And, and, and I'm going to go back to that over and over again. When I finish this, and I'm, I'm in the process, this study, I have so been amazed at God's goodness. It has confirmed and settled his goodness. When God says it's good, it means he's good. Day one. Then day two. But day three, he did it twice. Day four, he said it's good. Day five, day six. It's good. It was good. So we have this, this here picture of how God sets this into place and describes uh, goodness. And the reason appears that the separation of the waters really is twofold. First of all, the expanse separating water below from the waters above. We just read that day two, the, the sky. And then the next day, the separation of the waters below from the sea to the dry ground. So we had the land mass come on first part of the next day. So God chooses to wait and to declare all of that is good. So day three, land and plants. Day three, um, again, has two major things. We've already kind of talked about the land and the sea, so I'm not going to go back to that. Genesis chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, hints, it hints that there was a one land mass before the flood. There's a hinting. Um, this has led to the idea that the continents separated at a catastrophic time. A ca- something catastrophic pulled the planets apart, pulled, pulled the continents apart. The magnetic field of the earth is strong evidence that it happened well within the 10,000-year bracket. The magnetic field, if it happened 10,000 or longer, would have decayed by now. You wouldn't be able to track it, and they can track it. It's decaying that fast, and they can track it. So there's a dating on it. Then comes the beginning of biology. Biology starts on day three. Biology. Remember last week we talked about Genesis' book of geology, biology, science, study. It's a, it's a picture of uh, astronomy and all the things. You, you can study it from the book of Genesis. Biology now can begin to be studied on day three, the beginning of plants. They are, intri- they are intricately designed solar power plants. By the way, speaking of solar, did anybody get that crazy message first thing this morning saying that we are about to be nuked? From the uh, Pickering plant, right? And then a little while later, oops, there's an error. We feel safe. Okay, that was just a bunny trail there, sorry. Plants, that's actually where the plants, they get the name, right? Plants are, plants that grow from the soil are designed solar power plants. They efficiently turn energy of sunlight into chemical potential energy of food for animals and people like you and I. Yes, I'm getting hungry. They are not living creatures. Not the biblical sense. Consumption of food does not go against God's goodness. There's no consumption of anything living. Although God does not create light for the plants until the next day, again, some have argued saying, well, the next day he created light, the plants would have died. Well, understand the plants only had to live 12 to 24 hours before they got light from the sun. No problem. When God later creates animals, God will refer to animals as living creatures. You see that throughout the text. Animals are called living creatures. When God created man, he refers to us as living souls. So, 
It's notable that plants are never described as living creatures, living souls. Plants are described, Psalms 37.2 states that plants don't actually die, they wither. The reference is wither. Now, they cease to live. But the reference biblically is to keep them separate. Green plants have a vital role. We know that in our ecosystem, for they are the basis of our food chain. Because they don't require their own food, they make their ability to exist from water, carbon dioxide, and they're energized by sunlight wherein they produce oxygen, which keeps us living creatures and living souls alive. Plants are essential, so essential. Yes, it is worth keeping planet Earth healthy. It is. And it should be believers to be on the front lines to be preserving this planet. Because God made it. Day four, sun, moon, stars. I want to just pause here for a moment to highlight that these days are days. They are not eons of time. One day is not as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. Not here. Track with me. I'm going to put it on the overhead here in front of you. Creation to Adam was six 24-hour days. Adam to the flood was 1,656 years. How do we know? We can track the dates of the patriots of the scriptures. From the flood to Abraham, Abraham where the covenant was established, from the flood to Abraham was an additional 352 years. So, math, he was born 2,008 years after creation. Abraham to sojourn was 290 years. The sojourning years which brings us up to the Exodus, the years of wanderings, the years of discovery, were an additional 430 years until God rescues Israel in the Exodus. Then you go from the Exodus to King Solomon's temple, King Solomon, the son of King David. From the Exodus to King Solomon's temple, 480 years. You can track it in the second, first Chronicles, second Chronicles gives the chronic, chronic, chronological datings. To Solomon's temple, 480 years, as the temple was begun in 3,208 years after creation. The start of the temple to the division under Solomon's son, his son Rehoboam, Jeroboam, split the kingdoms, 37 years. And then the division of the kingdoms to where they would go into exile, First and Second Kings, again, the chronicles, you can mark it, you can put it down, 345 years. They're days. See how that all tracks. Why is it important to have 24-hour days? Number one, Genesis was written as history, not poetry. Hebrew. The language of the Hebrew writing, which is our Old Testament, the language of the Hebrew writing has special grammatical forms that records history. We don't pick it up in our English, but in the Hebrew it's distinguishable. Special grammatical forms, when you're speaking history, they use certain styles and prefaces. And Genesis uses all of them. This is the same structure used in the book of Exodus. And Exodus was meant to define history. It's used in the book of Joshua. Joshua defines history. Used in the book of Judges. Judges. The same word is used in Genesis. Genesis was never allegory. It was never a poet. Genesis, as well, is peppered with these phrases. And then. And then. And then. That always means after this event, this took place. After this event, that took place. After this event, that took place. It's peppered with it. 
throughout Genesis, which is historical writing. Secondly, it's the use of the word day. Hebrew, the word day is yom, where we get the word yom kippur. Yom kippur is a Jewish expression. Yom, day, kippur, in atonement or in atone. And so day in atonement. And so it's their most sacred day of atonement, yom, and yom Hebrew, the word yom in Genesis, again, compared, is consistent throughout Hebrew literature, which in all cases is defined as a day and night, a literal 24-hour period, yom, day and night. And that expression, yom, is used after chapter 11, 38 more times, or sorry, after chapter 1 for the rest of Genesis, 38 more times, and each time it refers to an ordinary day. Some critics of a creator have stated, well, the days could not be days, they can't be 24 hours, because Adam could not have possibly named all the animals in one day. And that befuddled me for a while, until I reread it. When you reread it, the scripture never says Adam named every species living on earth, but only the animals God brought to him in that day. They're recorded in chapter 2, verse 20. The cattle, the birds of the sky, and every beast of the field. That's who he named. The sea creatures were not included. Not everything that creeps on the earth, nor were they included. Others have stated that the sun was not created, was not created until the fourth day. So how could the first three days have been days? Well, what determines a day? A day is determined by the time it takes for the earth to complete a rotation along the axis. Correct? It's a day. All we need is for the earth to rotate. To mark the day with evening and morning, then all we need is a directional source of light. That was in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. A directional source of light. God said, let there be light. So we have here a light, a rotating earth and days. Therefore, we have, and there was evening, and there was morning. One day. I may next week talk about another thing that I've come up against, and here's the thing, here's the question. If the universe is young, and it takes millions of years for light to get to us from many of our stars, how can we see them? Good question. If the universe is young, thousands of years, and yet it's taking hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years for the light to travel because that's how far the planet is, how can we see them then? Okay. Come back next week. Um, Okay. I want to close here. I want to close here. Because this is... I didn't want this just to be academic. God created the heavens and the earth, the Bible says, as a manifestation of His glory. David, King David, would in Psalms 19 and in Psalms 8, David would say, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the works of God. Of his hands. Beloved, by you and I looking at this amazing creation, its beauty, its order, we cannot help but stand in awe of the majesty of God. I was going over this this morning and a song leapt into my spirit and I began to sing the song. I'm not going to sing the song to you, but you probably will recognize the song goes like this You are beautiful beyond description. Too marvelous for words, too wonderful for comprehension, like 
nothing ever seen or heard? Who can grasp the infinite wisdom? Who can fathom the depths of your love? You are beautiful beyond description. Finish it for me. Majesty enthroned above. And I stand, I stand in awe of you. I stand, I stand in awe of you. Holy God, in whom all praise is due. I stand in awe of you. And you look upon this great expanse. By you and I looking at this amazing creation, you can't help but see an amazing God behind everything we see. All elements of nature, the sun, the moon, the trees in the forest, the rain, the snow, the rivers, the streams, the hills, the mountains, animals, birds, all of it shouts out praise to God. Declaring who made them. Doesn't it? For those studying with me on Wednesday nights, we had gone to Romans chapter 1 verse 20. And it says in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. I'm going to do that again. It says, His eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, creation, so that people, us, have no excuse. In other words, God's all-powerful, all-wise attributes can be clearly seen in creation. Creation is so important. All around us, God is revealing Himself. And if I can't see God as He is revealing Himself, then I diminish who He is. What is salvation then? So we are truly without excuse. Let me give you an illustration I gave the crew when we were on Wednesday nights. Suppose you are in your car, you're driving down the street, you come to a sign and it says, detour, turn left. Now suppose you ignore it and you drive right on through. And there's a police officer who pulls you over. He comes up to your window and he says you went through a sign and he writes you a ticket. What's your excuse? Now, you may try to have an excuse. You may come up with saying something like, well, I didn't see the sign. But let's say the sign was there, it was clear, and it was colorful. Is the police officer going to say, oh, <laughs> excuse me. I guess if you didn't see it, you're okay then. Is that what's going to happen? No. No, you'll get the ticket. You get the ticket because it doesn't really matter if you say you saw the sign. The onus is on you. You're the driver. You have to look for the signs. It's not his responsibility. His responsibility is to have a sign. Your responsibility is to see and obey the signs. So the responsibility is you. And any disaster, if you went off a cliff, it's on you. Because the sign warned you. The sign was clear. Church, not only does creation give evidence of intelligent design, there's nothing small or mysterious about it. That's what Paul was addressing in Romans 1. It's not just a little sign. The sign, Paul says, is so big, it is so plain, everybody sees the sign. 
Just look around. We don't have a little itty bitty sign. The world is our universe. The world is a billboard of a sign of God's glory. Look at it. Study it. And the more you do, the more you are awed and amazed. at How great is our God. There is enough evidence in the first four days of creation at the end of this session today for a little child, for a little child to break out and worship to God. And there's enough evidence after four days of creation for the most educated adult to break out with uplifted hands in worshiping our Creator. The evidence is all around us. There's a saying. The saying is, he who excuses himself accuses himself. You can argue all, you can disbelieve in creation, that's your prerogative, it's our prerogative, it's our right, but you cannot change the consequence of a creator having set in motion his creation. The consequences is for all of us. You and I are without excuse to give our absolute and ultimate worship to God. Well, there's another song. And the song goes like this, from the highest of heights to the depths of the sea, creation revealing your majesty. You know the song? From the colors of fall to the fragrance of spring, every creature unique in the song that it sings. It goes to the next verse. Who has told every lightning bolt where it should go? Or who's seen heavenly storehouses laden with snow? Who imagined the sun and gives source to its light? yet conceals it to bring us the coolness of night. Then it goes into the chorus. Indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are an amazing God, all-powerful, untamable, awestruck. We fall to our knees as we humbly proclaim, you are an amazing God. Couldn't invite the worship team. Let's sing that song, but let's close in prayer. Father, God, thank you. God, thank you that you just didn't keep that from us of what happened and how we got here. Lord, we are inundated with many thoughts that remove you from the equation. But today, we pause and we say, thank you, God. Thank you, our creator, the God who spoke into being these things. And your spirit brought it to pass. Thank you, God, for so great a display of your majesty, so great a display of your glory, so great a display of who you are as God. Lord, even as we chipped the ice and drove and everything was white around us, went to bed and everything was green, woke up this morning and everything was white, you are an amazing God. Lord, the rain, the growth Life, a baby born. You are an amazing God. We get behind the telescopes and look off into space. You are an amazing God. Astronauts who are out on the space station sending pictures back of our earth. You are an amazing God. Lord, you make all things right. And in all things, you are good. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be in enlightened and and just the attitude of our hearts would be enraptured to praise you as our creator as we study you that lord we again allow our hearts to be enthralled in your greatness and your beauty 
Let it be today, we pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.